Well, the church, if you would open to John 19. John chapter 19, we will pick up uh, where Pastor Kent left off last week. Verse 25. And we'll just read through verse 27. This is God's Word. But standing by the cross of Jesus were His mother and His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw His mother and the disciple whom He loved standing nearby, He said to His mother, Woman, behold your son. And He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And so, Father, illumine this passage as we just prayed. We ask You again, Lord, uh, make it clear. Uh, Use this for the purpose for which You preserved it. And we pray especially um, regarding this issue of womanhood that You would give us understanding, deeper convictions, more clarity, uh, so that we can live for Your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we pick up again on this crucifixion narrative. Um, I was thinking about this. I don't know if any of you have ever posed this question before, but when did the crucifixion actually begin? As in, uh, at what point in Jesus' life did He begin to be crucified? Because the, the Romans would have said it began at the flogging. Right? That's, that's uh, part of the crucifixion process. Um, but was not the denial of Peter and the betrayal of Judas a type of crucifixion? And one author actually said that the whole life of Christ was a crucifixion. And you, and you think about that. You think, did he get the title man of sorrows because of a few hours of sorrow. Now, his whole life was suffering and he suffered in ways that we can't understand, especially in these last uh, hours. And he's doing it for us. He's doing it on our behalf. He's intentionally stepping into these six uh, trials, unjust trials, Uh, He then, after being sentenced to death, was carried up, uh, or carried rather his cross up Golgotha's hill. And out of love for us, he hangs there. uh, Suspended in air above Jerusalem, outside of the walls of Jerusalem, uh, near a, a trash heap on Golgotha's hill, Jesus is standing. That's where we're at in this narrative. And... I want to remind us that he said seven things when he was hanging on the cross. Uh, These have been called by many the seven sayings of Christ on the cross. And uh, John, in his gospel uh, account, he gives us only three of these seven. And so we're not going to study all seven, um, but really want to focus in on these these three uh, sayings from the cross uh, that Christ makes, and because they're unique to John. You won't find these in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. You find these only in John. And we're going to take a few weeks. I'm not rushed uh, to work to work through these. 
Um, so I'll, I'll point us to them, and then we'll begin our way through the first one. But verse 26 and 27, I, I would call it the adoption of Mary. Uh, Jesus asked the Apostle John to take care of his mother. He says, woman, behold your son. And to the Apostle John, behold your mother. In the next few weeks, uh, or I'm sorry, in the next few weeks, we'll get to verse 28, um, where Jesus says, I thirst. And there's a lot happening in that statement. After we examine that statement, we'll get to verse 30 that says, it is finished. And we will not take just one week on that uh, because that is a massive statement. So, let's pick back up in the narrative. Verse 25, let me read it again for us. Standing by the cross of Jesus were His mother, His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cloopas, and Mary Magdalene. Four women. When Jesus saw His mother and the disciple whom He loved, that's John, standing nearby, He said to His mother, Woman, behold your son. And He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So I'd like to give us today a, a theology of Mary. I want to talk about Mary. I want to talk about feminism as well, because that relates. I want to talk about Mariology, uh, which is the worship of Mary. And then I want to just end by getting a good idea of what strong womanhood looks like. And so... Um, I probably talk about womanhood more than most pastors. I think that's fair to say. If you were to tally up the amount of sermons I've preached on womanhood compared to most, um, it's probably more. And uh, I was thinking about why that is, and I think that the main reason is because as a man, I feel I still have the right to talk about women, which in our culture, most men don't feel they can talk about a woman. But I'm obviously not talking about womanhood by experience. Uh, I'm talking about womanhood uh, from what the Scripture has said about womanhood, uh, this objective authority we call the Bible. And, um, and so because I reject that kind of cultural narrative, I feel perfectly fine to say to the ladies, thus says the Lord, uh, about you ladies. However, I know there's limitations to that and that there's many things I cannot uh, explain about womanhood. And that's why Titus 2 says, Older women are to teach younger women how to love their husbands, how to love their children, and then it talks about other issues of womanhood, and that happens in this church uh, and will continue to happen. There's many issues in womanhood uh, that need to be fleshed out more practically by other ladies, and there's some basic truths that need to be proclaimed uh, from the pulpit because God has been clear. And if we lived 50 years ago, um, certainly 200 years ago, I would spend less time on this topic, uh, but we don't live in those times. We live now, and there is a war on uh, biblical womanhood just like manhood, and so we need, we need to understand what we mean when we talk about a strong woman. What is a strong woman? Because the, culture, the culture's ideas of that and the Bible's ideas of that uh, do not line up, and so... Um, the reason for that in our modern context, I think we, we would all say, is feminism. 
and I want to ask the question, what's, what's up underneath feminism? Like, I mean, I would say that feminism is, a, is basically a result of sin. Uh, at, at the root level, it's a rebellion against God's designed gender roles and calling for, uh, for womanhood and manhood. But that, that fundamental truth aside, what's, um, what's underneath it? What are the concerns that a, a, a feminist, a modern-day feminist, would have uh, behind their ideas? So, for, for example, many of you know about feminism, and there's different waves of feminism, four waves of feminism. That first wave of feminism uh, was mainly dealing with women's uh, rights to vote which I think we would agree is a good thing. Um, but it didn't stop there or on a few other issues. Uh, the feminist agenda pushed forward into other territory with the second wave and third and fourth wave um, into abortive birth controls and abortion rights and LGBT gender studies, intersectionality, systemic injustice, which I would say has uh, created more racism and all of that at some level, some level, not completely, but at some level can be traced back to second, third, fourth wave feminism. And you think, why? What's behind that? Why would uh, many women feel the need for all of this? And I think if we're really being honest, we would say they felt undervalued. They felt they were not empowered. They felt weak. And when we come to the Bible, that's just certainly not the way that the Bible speaks of women. Um, the Bible empowers women. The, the Bible has a higher view of womanhood than any culture, any belief system, any religion ever has. Jesus affirmed women more than anyone. And so, um, case in point, at the cross... Four of the five people at the foot of the cross that we're studying right now, women. The only remaining disciples with Christ at this point in his life, one, one guy, four girls. Significant. What about at the tomb? The first eyewitnesses to the resurrection, God chose to be women in a day in which women's uh, opinion in a court of law was not even considered valid. Or credible. And yet God had a higher view of women than many others. And so again, let's make sure we see what's going on here. Where I'm rooting this in. Verse 25. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And so those four women, I believe, are ancient pillars of feminine strength. And they still stand for us in this text in a, in a culture that does not understand feminine strength. Um, I'm, not a, I'm not a movie guy. Some of y'all know uh, you can mention movie stuff to me and I have no clue what you're talking about usually. Um, maybe I'll watch a movie a year. But um, I do remember a movie I saw a few years back where there was a lead kind of, uh, a, a, the lead character was a, was a woman who was fighting, and she people were fighting her. She's fighting other people, and she's getting she was getting punched by the men. 
And I remember how shocking that was to me to see a woman being punched. And what threw off my categories even more was that it was a, the good guy, the good man who was punching her. And I understand that that stuff is normal in our day, um, celebrated by, by some, I guess. Um, women being aggressive, sassy, savvy, uh, and, and strong to the point that a 5'3 female, 130 pounds, can take on an army of men without her hair getting messed up or breaking a nail or a, a, you know, she's in high heels and... Right? And, and you say, well, it's a movie, Pastor. What? Yes, it's a movie, and movies have powerful ways to convey what should be, what ought to be. Subliminally, we're getting this message uh, in, in movies, we're getting this, even girls' uh, clothing at Target. What, what, what do these shirts say? Girl power, strong girls rule, girls run the world. Um... Now again, is there anything wrong with strong girls? No, I'm about to argue that that's a good thing. But that's not what they mean. They're not going to be defining that the way we mean strong. They're going to fill that in with, with, with all sorts of ideological beliefs regarding womanhood that's very different than what the Bible would mean by strong women. Uh, one female author said this, Modern feminism makes maleness and femaleness interchangeable. Women often, and therefore women are often unable to delight in the fact that the feminine strength has a different texture to it than masculine strength. Even worse, women feel the need to aspire to, compete with, or deny and reject the male strength that God intended for their benefit. And... Um, I, was, I saw the, uh, recently a panel discussion with, with some um, leading... Uh, godly female authors. And I guess the whole conference was talking about strong women. And uh, before this conference, they had gone out on the streets and they interviewed a bunch of ladies kind of in the streets of this big city just to kind of get what, what's the kind of the working definition of a strong woman out in the culture. And so they would ask, they went up to a series of women and asked, what is a strong woman? And um, identify one, like name, name people. And Hillary Clinton, Beyonce, Oprah, Michelle Obama were kind of the top answers that were given. And they followed that question with, uh, why do you feel these women are strong? And the answers uh, were successful in career, fame, followers on Instagram, physical strong physical strength and independence. And then the, the, the lady interviewing them asked a final question. She said, do you think that this definition of female strength is, is a right definition of female strength? And you would think they would say, yes, that's what I just said. Yeah. They all backpedaled and said, I don't, I don't know really. And it all kind of unraveled. Why? Well, because our culture doesn't know what strong womanhood looks like. And here, here's an interesting thing I've been thinking about, and this is a connection I want to make here in this text. The confusion of womanhood connected to the confusion regarding Mary. I, I Stick with me on this, but I think Mary has been appropriated in nearly every culture. 
an interest group. From Mexican farm workers to anti-abortion activists. And one author said, we make her into our own image. And really have to make her up because she only says four things in the whole Bible. And the apostles never even speak of her. That's why one Episcopal bishop said, so much of who she is and was is left to our imaginations. So your average person knows virtually nothing about Mary. And so, but they like the image of Mary, they like the concept of Mary, especially if you can just fill it in with all the things you want her to be for you. And that's how Mary largely functions. You have the flag of the European Union with Mary. You have, uh, she's revered in Hindu, uh, by Hindus in India, by Muslims, hold her above all other women. She's enshrined to countless cathedrals, not on a stained glass window or a painting, but uh, often some sort of statue behind the Eucharistic mask, mass where she's kind of overseeing the church as the mother of the church, as the mother of heaven. And then she is the very, there's a lot of superstition around Mary uh, that people think they see her image in waterfalls or rock formations. And in 2004, I believe it was, someone sold a grilled cheese sandwich for $28,000 that they thought they saw the face of Mary in. I mean, ask a tattoo artist who they tattoo on people most in terms of a female. It's Mary. I mean, millions of people are walking around with Mary tattooed on them. Um, Fifty novels have been written about her in the past 20 years alone. Countless books, movies, Broadway plays, scholarly journals, articles, paintings, which is why National Geographic recently headlined, proclaimed her the most powerful woman in the world. And you go, Why? Because we've studied out the Scripture to really understand who she really was? Nope. No. Um, Because for 1,700 years, Catholic dogma has built up a definition, an idea of Mary. Um, When Constantine made Rome a Christian nation in the 4th century, many of those who became Christians were pagans, and they were forced to become Christians to the point where Calvin said, uh, is a great line, he said, Rome was baptized without actually being converted. And one of the ways we know this was because they took all their pagan deities from the Greco-Roman world, where there's different deities that are female and male and these gods and goddesses, and they turned them into Christian characters. Right? Where you merge this paganism with this Christianity. It's called syncretism when you do that. And Mary became the chief patron. The, the, a pagan deity of sorts, only called Mary. Um, this, this is uh, indisputable if you study this historically. So in the Catholic Church, many became organically, then officially, Mary became the mother of heaven and the mother of the church. Uh, There's a painting that depicts uh, how Mariology escalated. It's a picture of the Trinity, which you should never paint a picture of the Trinity or attempt to. Uh, Very blasphemous to even try to do that. But the the Trinity supposedly was crowning Mary as the Queen of Heaven. 
this all continued until even the Vatican I in 1870, where the Catholic Church was still seeking to glorify Mary as a co-equal mediator and redeemer with Christ. Still today, you can look this up on Amazon later if you don't believe me, uh, The Glory of Mary is a book, very famous book, it doesn't just have, you know, most books, if you have eight editions of a book, that's a lot of editions, right? This has 800 editions. 800 editions to the glory of Mary. This is a, this book when it was written and then rewritten numerous times, uh, the author of this book was uh, made a, a doctor of the church in Rome, of, of the Catholic church, because of this seminal work on Marian dogma. Um, Let me just read a prayer that's in this book. O Mother of perpetual help, Thou art the dispenser of all the gifts which God grants to us miserable sinners. And for this end, He has made Thee so powerful, so rich, and so bountiful in order that uh, that Thou mayest help us in our misery. Thou art the advocate of the most wretched and abominable sinners who have recourse to Thee. Come to my aid. For I recommend myself to thee. In, uh, in thy hands I place my eternal salvation. It's not to Christ, this is to Mary. And to thee I entrust my soul. Count me among thy devoted servants. Take me under thy protection and it is enough for me. For, I, for if thou protectest me, I fear nothing. I fear not even my sins, because thou wilt obtain for me the pardon of them, nor from the devils, because thou art more powerful than all of hell together. Nor even from Jesus, my judge, because by one prayer from thee, he will be appeased. But one thing I fear, that in the hour of temptation I may through negligence, fail to have recourse to Thee and thus perish miserably. Obtain for me, therefore, the pardon of my sins, love for Jesus, final perseverance, and the grace ever to have recourse to Thee, O Mother of perpetual help. And then it closes with three Hail Marys. Which to you Baptists uh, has nothing to do with football. Um, (laughs) Completely different. This book goes on and says, Mary is more holy than all other saints combined, for she holds the great office of mediatrix. That is in Latin, a female mediator. Which she was charged with from the beginning, which shows she was to possess a greater treasure of grace than all other men together. It is well known, I'm still reading the quote here, it is well known, she holds this title of mediatrix since she has obtained salvation by way of justice. Uh, she has obtained salvation for all, her powerful intercession and congruity, thereby securing redemption for the lost world. Jesus is our mediator by way of justice and merit, but Mary is a mediatrix of grace because she offered her merits to God for the salvation of all men. I don't know if I could read something much more blasphemous from this pulpit. It would be hard to find something. And yet, I read it because literally millions, if not billions, believe this. And they're saying 
if you're too scared to go to Jesus as a mediator, if, if He will treat you harshly, Mary won't. She's a mother. Certainly, mothers understand. Certainly, mothers are sympathetic. Who could be more sympathetic than a mother? And, and a mother of Jesus? Look what her son became. You, you see how this works. And so, this isn't just to misunderstand Mary, is it? It's also to misunderstand Christ. Who is the mediator between God and man. Who is the mediator sitting at the right hand of the Father. Who makes intercession for us. Do we need a helper from heaven if God sent the paraclete? The, the Holy Spirit? Do we need... We, 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 Jesus, in sending the Holy Spirit, was saying to Mary and to all of us about Mary, you don't need her to help you from heaven. I've sent the helper from heaven. It's called the Holy Spirit. And again, here's why I bring this up, guys. I'm not taking a rabbit trail away from this text. Uh, John 19.27, when Jesus says, Behold your mother, read a Catholic commentary on that. They will say that's not just to John. She doesn't just become John's mother. She becomes the church's mother in that statement. There's actually a, um, a story in the Middle Ages passed around that Mary, when she came into heaven, Jesus greeted her and He said, Oh mother, I'm so glad you're finally here. I will divide my kingdom with you now. I will be the king of righteousness and you will be the queen of mercy. And, you know, some of you like me, you know, kind of, we, we, we just look at or hear these things. And we're like, how does that even happen? How, how do you even get to this place? And Mariology, the, the worship of Mary, it didn't all happen at once, right? This was a process. And especially in the times in which the church either didn't have this book or were illiterate and couldn't read it anyway, and many of the priests not even being able to read and were illiterate. And then these things get passed by word of mouth, and how are you going to counter it? Seems like a logical thing. Um, we, that's my best guess at how this has happened, because there's literally no exegetical arguments you could make for any of these things, or biblical arguments. Uh, you're forced to just dig into church history within Marian dogma. That's where you'll find these things. So I want to give seven biblical arguments. Why? Uh, I'll, these will be very quick. Why Mary should be viewed as just a regular woman and not the mother of heaven or the church. So argument one is that Jesus calls her woman, not Mary of, uh, or Mary my mother, heaven, mother of heaven or the church. Um, Jesus calls her woman. Not mother. Jesus never called Mary mother in Scripture. I'm sure he did when he was a kid. I'm sure he called her mother. But it's not recorded in Scripture that he ever called her mother. What he calls her in Scripture is woman. Which is not a derogatory, it sounds derogatory to our ears, kind of an unkind thing to say. Um, this was a title of endearment. Gene, uh, where we get gynecology, or uh, is a root word in this term mother that's being used here. It's an honorable term in that day. 
<clears throat> and we know Jesus actually said this to Mary um, in, in John chapter 2. Remember at the wedding feast at Cana? They ran out of wine and then Mary comes to him and says, hey Jesus, they've run out of wine. As if to say, hey, do something about this. And then Jesus refers to her as woman. Additionally, um, we could look at the scene in Mark 3 that Jesus is teaching and then his mother and brothers arrive and they say, hey, your mother and your brother are outside looking for you. And Jesus says, who is my mother and my brothers? Whoever does the will of God is my mother, my brothers and my sister. And so I, I, I agree with many theologians who would say when Jesus started his three-year ministry, his relationship with his family took on a different form. He didn't, uh, it's not that he neglected them in any way or he wasn't loving them, but he was referring to them differently, um, probably to guard Mary from the spotlight because if Jesus is establishing himself as the Son of God, maybe he didn't want his mother to be seen as the mother of God. Could be could be a logical reason why Jesus would speak to her in this way. Second, uh, Jesus assigned her a role, and that role was not heavenly mother, uh, it was to go live with John. You say, what did Jesus tell Mary to do? To go live with John. That's what he told her to do. And he told her to do what every other Christian is to do, make disciples and all these other things. So one commentator said, Jesus doesn't comfort her that she will be a mother to the church or a queen of heaven, but that she will be cared for by another. And the fact that she has to be cared for by another, doesn't this clearly show she's needy? She's not ready to be a heavenly mother. She needs to be cared for by John. She's a regular woman. And... She not only needed to be served like anyone else, she needed to be saved like anyone else. In Luke 1, before, her, before Jesus' birth, or right when she gets the announcement, it says, Mary said this, My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She knew she needed a Savior. She didn't think she was the Savior or some sort of Redeemer. She, she knew she needed a Savior. Additionally, Mary goes on to give birth to a bunch of normal, sinful human boys and girls. She has other kids with Joseph. They're not sons of God. They're not the Son of God. She has normal kids later, which shows she a, a, a miracle was enacted in her in one moment at one time, and that's it. She's a normal woman other than that. Um. It's really shocking. I mean, you, you can study this out, but we don't find Mary anywhere in the New Testament after the Gospel accounts. We see her in Acts chapter 1. And then the only other time, Paul in uh, Galatians 4.4, 4, he says that in the full, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. Not born of Mary. He could have, but He didn't. He said, born of a woman. He kept it general on purpose. I believe. Additionally, number six, uh, Matthew 27 is the crucifixion scene that Matthew's describing. And he refers to Mary without mentioning that she's Jesus' mother. So it says this, 
There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. So it doesn't say Jesus's mother was there. It says the mother of James and Joseph. And we know from Matthew 13, 55, those were her sons. It identifies Mary as the mother of James and Joseph. And Matthew intentionally leaves Mary out as the mother of Jesus and says she's the Mary of James and Joseph. Um, Additionally, later on in that chapter, he refers to her as the other Mary. The other Mary. And then probably the most shocking of all, and lastly, Luke 11, Jesus intentionally removed special honor from her. This is, this is the most significant thing to dethrone her as this queen of, of heaven would be uh, someone yells out in the crowd, you'll remember this, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast in which nursed you. So someone yells that out in the crowd. What does Jesus say? Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. He intentionally takes the spotlight off of Mary and says, no, better than the one who gives birth to Mary and and sustains his life and mothers him, better is the person who obeys the Word of God. Which led J.C. Ryle to say, we surely need no stronger proof than we have here that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was never meant to be honored as divine or to be prayed to, worshipped, and trusted in as the friend and patron of sinners. Common sense points out that she needed care and protection from another and was never likely to help men or women to heaven or to be in any sense a mediator between God and man. It is not too much to say, however painful the assertion, that of all the inventions of the Church of Rome, there never was one more utterly devoid of foundation both in Scripture and reason than the doctrine of Mary worship. So, I want to end asking the question, what is a strong woman? And I want to come back to these four women here and and look at them for just a moment. And I want to reverse it. To try to define or see how the Bible defines a strong woman, what if we just said, what is a weak woman? Because we have that phrase in Scripture. In fact, in uh, 2 Timothy 3, Paul refers to some women in Ephesus and he calls them weak women. And I don't think they would have thought of themselves this way. Paul's writing to Timothy, uh, who was pastoring a church in this large metropolitan progressive city in that day. They had running water. They had hot and cold water. They had five-story condos in Ephesus. This is a a very modern type city, even architecturally. And in Ephesus, women had rights. They could vote. They could own property. They could divorce their husbands. They led in many areas of society. This is not a traditional suppressive culture, as many would, would call a, 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 a per- suppressive culture. This is a very progressive culture. Um, and Paul says that these women, there's some women here that are weak. They're weak. The term Paul uses for weak is not talking about physical weakness. The term he uses for weak could be translated small or little. 
that they're not the full thing. They're, they're falling short of what is complete, what is ideal. They are less than what is ideal. That's the idea. So you say, what about them is less than ideal? Well, let's look at the whole verse. So 2 Timothy 3, and this is what it says. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women. Burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So these false teachers are, are capturing weak women who are vulnerable because of what? They're burdened by various sins. They're led astray by various passions. They're always learning, but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So if weak women are those burdened with sins, then strong women are not burdened with sins. If weak women are those led astray by various passions, strong women are not led by their emotions and various passions. If weak women are those always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth, then strong women are grounded in truth and not easily swayed regarding what they believe and what is true. Um, Here's another passage that I think is applicable, Titus 2. It talks about older women training younger women. And it says that the older women should train younger women uh, to love their husbands and love their children, to submit to their own husbands, working at home. He talks about uh, issues related to womanhood and older women should teach younger women these things. But then he says this, and to be self-controlled. To be self-controlled. So strong women have a temperament, a a controlled strength, so that they aren't easily given over to worry and fear and anxiety. As Proverbs 31 says, they're able to laugh at the time that is to come. Strong women aren't easily swayed theologically or emotionally, tossed back and forth by emotions and ideas. Strong women don't give in to gossip and slander and bitterness. They don't run from pain and loss and trials. They draw near to where there might be pain like these four women did approaching the cross of Christ. Strong women as First Peter 3 says, they adorn themselves in the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. And just a side note there, God never tells men to adorn themselves with a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. God tells us brothers to do a lot of things. He doesn't say adorn yourself with gentleness and a quiet spirit. But that is commanded of women. It's a different texture. Remember that quote I gave earlier? Feminine strength has a different texture than masculine strength. Here's something else worth noticing is that uh, three of the four women here are named Mary. You know what Mary means? Bitterness. The idea of bitterness, I don't know what that word means to you. I think the common understanding would mean it isn't sweet. Right? So could it be that these women knew the bitterness of life? They knew the trials of life. They knew the difficulties of life. That life is hard. Under Jesus' cross are four women who have tasted the bitterness of life. No doubt they knew joy. 
you know, Mary, I mean, who could have been a greater joy to parent than Jesus? She knew joy. But here she is, standing in the dirt with the blood of her son, watching him die. As a parent, it's hard to imagine what she was going through. Uh, I've been thinking, John Owen is a theologian I greatly appreciate. He had 11 children. You know how many of them lived past, in, past infancy? One. Ten of the 11 children God gave them didn't make it past infancy. Yet he kept serving the Lord. Didn't shake his fist at God and turn away. And Mary, here she is at the foot of the cross, not really understanding all the reasons why Jesus is hanging there. You think she gets it fully what the atonement is? and all? She doesn't fully get all this yet. J.C. Ryle says something very profound. Please listen to this. He says, the four women who stood by the cross neither fainted nor went into hysterics, but were self-controlled and calm. Let everyone be persuaded in their own minds, some women can do what others cannot. As, put yourself in Mary's position just for a moment if we could. She's, she's sitting at the foot of the cross probably remembering Christ as a child. Birthdays, getting Him ready for school, cooking meals. Maybe she's thinking about Him maturing into uh, the young man and then the man who, when Joseph, her husband, died, we know Joseph died at some point, and Jesus became the caretaker of His mother and His siblings as the oldest. She's remembering Him and we go, it's got to be, it's, it's impossible, someone might say, to really know what she's feeling. And I would say, it's very possible to know what she's feeling. In fact, we know exactly what she was feeling. Because there's an ancient prophecy that tells us exactly what she was feeling. Simeon's prophecy said this in Luke 2, A sword shall pierce through your own soul also. You know when that prophecy was fulfilled? Right there at the foot of the cross. Mary, the blade was going into her at that moment. And that, that quote, that prophecy that Simeon gave, that she pondered, it says she pondered these things. I mean, you can imagine, she, she lived her life wondering, what does all this stuff mean? She's feeling the fulfillment of that in that moment. And you know what, guys? She bore it. She bore it. Without words. There, there's a quiet strength to womanhood that can heap burning coals on an enemy. There, there's a power to womanhood that 1 Peter 3 says can win without an argument by the conduct Feminism does not know about that type of strength. They do not know about the type of strength that Mary has. 
J.C. Ralph said they were self-controlled and calm at the foot of the cross. So ladies, let men, let Mary inspire you. I mean, this is unbelievable, supernatural, God-given strength. We don't worship Mary, but we imitate her. And from the moment the angels came to this teenage girl, we see this poise, this self-control, this sober-mindedness, this joy that she manifests. And, and look, ladies, what, what you need most for biblical womanhood is not just to get better at domestic duties or wife roles or with your kids. That's not the ultimate need of biblical womanhood. The ultimate need of biblical womanhood is this holy calm that Mary possessed. This uh, ability to submit to the will of God. Listen to this. Jesus says to her, to Mary, Behold your son. And it says that very hour she went to his home. She obeyed him. First time. That's what women, godly women do. Jesus tells me to do something, I do it. No argument. No whining. It is an honor to serve and to obey my Lord. Look at what Mary's teaching us. That's what your kids need. A mother who will drop her dreams and plans to obey the Lord. That's what your husband needs. A wife who doesn't put him first or the kids first, but Christ first. That's what this church and our culture needs. Women who surrender all to the will of Christ as Mary did. That's how we should remember her. She's not just losing a son. She's trusting in a Savior. Remember her that way. She's more like us than we often think. Uh, as we come to the table... I want to transition us to the table with one more thing from the text. Uh, if you'll look lastly at verse 27. He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. I think, again, this is speculation. But that Jesus could have given John some sort of head nod. Some sort of indication Take her now. She can't be here for this. It says that the moment he said that, that very hour, they left. And the theologians, the commentators point out that at that very hour, darkness fell upon the cross. It's like Jesus is saying to John, she can't be here for this. She need not be here for this. Guys, these are sobering things. As we come to the table, uh, Jesus obviously went to the cross for more than just Mary's sins. He went for our sins. We need to believe that. Come to the table with confidence that the blood of Christ is powerful to even cleanse us from sin. Take a few moments. Uh, those of you who have trusted Christ, who have been baptized into His name, uh, come when you're ready. Uh, if you're not going to come to the table, we do have uh, in our bulletins some meaningful prayers you can pray in this time. Take a few moments and pray and prepare your hearts. Father, we, 
Lord, we thank you for Mary. I guess in some sense you could have chosen anyone to give birth to Christ. But you did choose her. And Lord, she obeyed you and she raised Jesus. And she showed a devotion to you and your will that is inspiring to us. And Lord, we pray for that heart. That heart, Lord, that sees obedience to You as a high and glorious calling. Lord, we we pray that as we go to the table, we would remember why You were hanging on that cross and what it achieved for us. And so deepen our confidence in the blood of Your Son. We pray this in Your name, Jesus. Amen.